this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 195. We are recording on Thursday, February 9th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Welcome back, Rebecca. Hello, and thank you. Were you actually skiing, or were you just snowbound somewhere? Oh, no, I was actually skiing. We went to um, Snowshoe, West Virginia, and lucked into a really deliciously snowy week. Mm. Um, So first I read a book about the twisty, turny, dark side of marriage, which is a great thing to read when you're in a cabin with your partner for (laughs) five nights. Uh, And then I read a ski memoir that was really good, and I like you know took naps in front of the fireplace and drank a lot of whiskey. Mm. But a I did memoir uh, yeah, like, about skiing. Yes. Um, huh. By a woman named it's like a kind of incredible premise that just showed up on my doorstep two days before the trip. So it was the out. woman did or the book did <laughs> the book did. But I okay. want to be her friend. So she wants a, to show up here. Antecedent problem with that. <laughs> uh, Steph Jagger. Uh, the book is called Unbound. And she mm-hmm. like had kind of a late quarter life crisis at 29 and decided she was tired of like chasing achievements. She had racked up a bunch of professional accomplishments and she was a really good skier. So she quits her job and like sells all her stuff and sets out to ski her way around the world, like chasing winter basically Mm -hmm. for a a year and to try to ski 4 million vertical feet in that year, which she doesn't know when she sets the goal that if she does this, she'll be close to breaking the world record. But into the journey, she finds that out and she ends up breaking the world record. And the book is about skiing, but also about what hmm. happens when like you set out to achieve a thing, but it turns out that what's going to happen actually is like you're going to end up sort of remaking yourself. Um, hmm. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. We haven't had an we haven't had an audible spot or a PHA spot in a while, so we haven't been able to do our what we're oh, reading yeah. recently. So I'm glad to catch up with what's Yes. Uh, what's, Are what's you listening there. to anything good, my friend? Now I'll save it. Well then we have a bunch coming up. I I'm listening I'm in Rome and I'm I'm right now I'm listening to SPQR by Mary Beard about the history of Rome, which is excellent. All right, okay. Um, I guess I'm just the old guy that reads nonfiction about history. I I someone needs to figure this out. Like, cause it's a it's a verifiable phenomenon that like Men of a certain age, especially, it's like just start book reading the, the dad book. Well, like, but there's a certain kind of dad book, right? It's like not just I don't know. It, it happened as I know. I'm uh, I've been 74 for the last 15 years. So <laughs> everything happened. I mean, I've been going bald and now am bald. I started going bald when I was 17, so I guess I'm just accelerated in this regard. But I don't know. I'm into it. Like these ancient history things that would have bored me to tears 10, 15, 20 years ago. I, I can't get enough of it. I don't know what's going on with that. Um, anyway, also reading about the fall of Rome is <clears throat> timely in its own <laughs> way. Um, anyway, let's do our first sponsor. We'll get All on right. with the, the contemporary news. Yeah, Third Love is back this week. If you are looking to give the perfect fitting bra as a late Valentine's Day gift by the time that you're listening to this show, uh, or if you just want to treat yourself, that's always appropriate. Uh, Third Love bras were developed using thousands of real women's measurements. They range from double A to G cups, and they also include signature half cup sizing in some of the levels. So 
if you are hard to fit, Third Love may have a solution for you. Also, no matter your body shape, they have options that, so that you can find the fit that's right for you or for the loved one that you're shopping for. They also have this tool called the Third Love Fit Finder, where it only takes 30 seconds to determine the best size and style for your body. I've used this. You answer you know, questions about your different measurements and the shape of your body and what kind of bra you're looking for, and it tells you what kind of bra is right for you. And so far, this has worked very well for me. Uh, Third Love stands behind their products so much that they're willing to let our Book Riot listeners try a bra, any bra, from their 24-7 collection for free. You just pay $2.99 for shipping. Once it shows up on your doorstep, not a woman, a bra, you take the tags off, you wear it, you wash it, you really live in it, all the normal things you would do in your bra for 30 days, and make sure you love it. If you do, you keep it, they charge your card, you and your new bra go about your merry way. If you don't love it, you can send it back for free and your card will not be charged. So go to thirdlove.com slash bookriot today to get started. You can say goodbye to slipping straps, side overflow, all the rest. Find your new favorite bra. Again, that's thirdlove.com slash bookriot. Okay, we got some follow-up to start off the week. Um, we talked about this, who knows what like it was. It was several ago, months yeah. ago. Maybe, yeah. Um, the I2 Arts Collective, um, led by Renee Watson, uh, was looking to turn... The, the brownstone that Langston Hughes lived in for the last 20 years of his life, that's in Har- Sugar Hill in Harlem, into a community arts center. And, and they did it, basically. Yes, they raised yeah. $150,000. So they signed a lease um, in October, and it's they just had their opening ceremonies, and they're going to have workshops, open mic nights, poetry salons, discussions with authors, and more. Um, so it's they don't own the brownstone, but I guess they have a long-term lease. Mm-hmm. And... It doesn't. It's not a museum. Like it's not. It's meant to be used. So I'm not sure exactly what it is more than a gathering space. But that's enough. Like that. I, I'm kind of glad that it's actually a usable space and not sort of a shrine, which you certainly del- deliver uh, deserves. Yes. Don't get me wrong. But it is cool to see this as a you know a living space rather than rather than sort of an artistic mausoleum. Yeah, it feels appropriate, especially for Langston Hughes's. Mm-hmm. legacy for this to be continually open and a gathering space like you were saying and to be sort of a place where progress and moving forward is possible and encouraged rather than a reflection or just a reflection on the past but it, it pulls those things together nicely um was it the center for fiction we were talking about like yes it's the center for fiction that's going to launch a new series of like s- programs about race i no, can't remember no, something that's in claudia new York. rankine's macarthur yes. money yes right claudia that's all right we've talked about so many cool things I can't keep track mm-hmm. of them, but it would be cool to like maybe she can pair, uh, like partner up with mm. uh, with this place. That would be very cool. Or if you're and in you, New York and you have a thing, you got a yeah, spot you can. I think wonder about. if you can. I'm sure that you could host. I mean, I'm not sure. I'd be curious <laughs> to know. Probably a pretty good chance that they could rent it out or something else like that. I mean, for Hughes and Harlem too, and especially his connection to the Harlem Renaissance, the most. One of the more dynamic cultural moments in American literary history, even that, that where the social scene and the artistic scene really – there was a lot of crosstalk going mm-hmm. on at the same time. So it's it's cool that it is in its own way a tribute to that, that time and him particularly where he was always a champion of younger writers and himself benefited from being a part of the literary community of – especially – uh, black people in New York. So, yeah, I don't know if I don't know if they have open hours or anything else, but we'll put a link in the show notes there for New York or visiting New York and you want to go see it sometime. A welcome addition to the New York literary landscape, uh, I would say. Let's do some more follow up. We talked a couple weeks ago 
about uh, oh the book that shall not be named uh-huh. about whether or not librarians were going to be buying it. Did they have to buy it? Like how does it actually work out? Um, and Emily Ringborg, um, our Swedish librarian hey, hey, correspondent. Emily. Hi, Emily. Thanks for writing us. Um, she she wrote in with this, and I'll, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll paraphrase. Basically, she said in Sweden they she wouldn't go out of their way to get this title, but. Their policy says that if a patron requests it, we should buy it. Mm. Um, so that policy has forced us to buy titles that we never would have bought. Otherwise, the policy explicitly states that, quote, controversial and narrow views should be given space. The libraries also provide debated controversial books, among other things, to be able to contribute to discussions, interpretations, and reinterpretations. And it goes on, purchase suggestions should be met as far as possible within the framework of the mandate of the library. So she says the policy is due for renewal – but um, she finds it very difficult personally in the acquisitions group to do this, um, and she has bought books that you know maybe she wouldn't have otherwise. You know, um, will the patrons borrow it? Is it a value to the collection? So that's that's the answer. I mean, I'm not sure. It's a tough. It's tough, right? I mean, it's a pub, if if the book that shall be not shall not be named actually comes out, there is a sort of a historical record piece of it that seems mm-hmm. important to me. You know, maybe it should just be in that place where Indiana Jones put the Ark of the Covenant, right? And you have to go. But, you know, I don't know that needs to be in the shelf of local branches, but there is that piece that libraries do too, is they make it available for people. Maybe you're going to read it for reporting reasons or you're writing a paper or, you know, any mm-hmm. number of things that are that are part of what libraries do. Yeah, and it, it does seem to – I mean, I'd really be interested in hearing from some U.S. librarians as well. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about whether this policy is similar or different, like what's what's happening in U.S. libraries, how that resembles what's going on in Emily's library in Sweden. But I do see the value in a library – like the goal of the library is to support the community and, you know – We've talked about the ways that librarian services are political and that individual librarians particularly um, can guide readers towards certain kinds of books or away from certain other kinds of books. But uh, if the goal of the library that everyone pays taxes for is to provide reading material for the taxpayers, then I get that, you know, the impulse behind if a patron requests it, then mm-hmm. we should make it available. Um but it's like that. That's tough. Um, and it's and the it's, patron's first move, right? I mean, the right. librarians here, at least, don't mm-hmm. seem like. Again, I don't know under what conditions they would be required to buy something, but in this particular, it's they they need the you know they need the the other player to move first. So they right. they can't they have to be reactive, but they don't have to be proactive in acquiring stuff they don't want. Like they don't have to go buy blah 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 because it's in the news or something right. else like that. Um, which makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know how – it also wouldn't make sense. I don't think, honestly – and I've thought about it a little, but if the if, if, if several, especially if several patrons request something and say, no, we don't carry that. I mean, it's its own kind of censorship right. too. I mean, that's that's when we really do get into a question of censorship when a government agency it says we're not going to buy that book or make that book available. It's considerably different than the publisher publishing right. it. Right, right, right. Like suddenly once it's published and we're talking about the government – then I think it gets trickier f- oh, yeah. from where I stand. Does that make Does that, do you feel like that too? Yeah, or I think is it... so too. And I think, you know, it's a good time to do the uh, thought experiment of reversing the situation where if right. there were right. a book that we in our, you know, left leaning hippie uh, yeah. liberal perspective wanted to have in our local libraries, but our local libraries were like, no, some people object to your hippie liberal books. We're not going to put them in. We would have a problem. With that, and I think you're right that um, the conversation is different once the book exists because the yeah. conversation 
question about should this book be published is really about should someone is there a moral duty to publish or to not publish to give a platform or to not give a platform to this kind of material but once mm-hmm. the publisher makes the decision to give the book a platform and the book is out in the world as a thing that people want to read uh, that some people apparently want to read if you're a government agency like a library and one of the taxpayers who supports your library mm-hmm. uh, wants the material, right? It's not in your purview, I think, to censor that. Um, it does get a lot trickier. Um, so It's not unlike these stories we've talked about with, you know, um, school libraries and, the, you know, getting books pulled off the shelf. That's the, that is the, you know, mm-hmm. Courtney Summers, All the Rage is the big one that happened right. last summer, the summer before, <clears throat> somewhere over on the Eastern Seaboard. I can't remember exactly where. But it's that's what happened. I mean, it was on that. That wasn't even not buying it. That was it was on the shelf and you pull it. So it's that also has, adds a different wrinkle. But the central idea being that the library as an arbiter of what is okay to even be available, not just like it's good or bad, just availability is uh, the the neutrality of availability mm-hmm. is important for for publicly funded libraries. Yeah, and- it seems to me. A vector of this that I, we haven't talked about as much is booksellers, where mm. you know they're those are private businesses. They can make decisions about who, which books they're willing to give platform to, and which ones they're not. And we've seen statements that I think we've mentioned on the show um, from some booksellers saying they either won't stock this book, or they're not stocking Simon and Schuster books, or they're changing their Simon and Schuster order, or they're donating all of their profits yeah. from sales of Simon and Schuster books to uh, like the ACLU. Um, but I'm curious to hear if you're a bookseller and you're listening, how you would field the request from a patron who wanted you to, if they came in and you did not have this book that shall not be named, uh, but they wanted you to order it for them, uh, is mm. would you want to serve that customer or are you not interested in that customer? I might be, I'm curious about that. That is tricky. And we've seen a range of responses from, um, we're not going to stock it and we won't order it if it is stocked to, we're donating our margin on SNS titles to, I think, the ACLU. I think mm-hmm. it was Booksmith, maybe. Yeah, was the it was. One uh, yeah, the Booksmith. That. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's tricky. Like, I don't know where the line is, right? Because the, the the tentacles of, a, of an imprint are all over the place. Does it apply to kids' books? You know, does it apply right. to the sci-fi fantasy imprints? Is it just the one title? Is this one imprint? And the the way that big publishers are organized in which there's sort of plausible deniability built into the autonomy of imprints. It's, it's, you know, it's tricky. It's tricky from a consumer slash retailer's point of view to take a moral stand about selling a particular item or a range of items. Like at what point is the, is the imprint clean? Is the author clean? Mm. You know, like (laughs) at what point are they not sullied by association with this particular title? Like, is it your second cousin once removed? Are you guilty of that? Like, it's very difficult to know. I mean, so I think, I think we've, the, the attitude we've taken amongst ourselves here is there's no right or wrong really way to deal with it. Cause it all, it is it also messy in this particular case. Um, <clears throat> Okay, sorry, I'm fighting a cold here. So, this was I added this under your nose right before we got started. <laughs> oh. We knew we knew that Rushdie had a new novel coming out this year, but to this point, I don't believe we knew what it was about. We did not. Um, and it's called The Golden House, and it's coming in September. And um, <laughs> hold on to your hats, oh boy, because he's dramatizing the last eight years of U.S. politics. <laughs> um, And, you know, Rushdie is not afraid of getting in the muck. That's what I was just about to say is I don't know if there's anybody in American fiction quite as fearless and for such good reasons as Salman Rushdie right right now. Yeah. 
not un, not unused is Rushdie to writing speaking truth to the power of authoritarian right. this is like the come at me bro of literary fiction mm-hmm. uh, let's, I'm going to read some of the announcement just to give you a flavor of it according to publisher Jonathan Cape The Golden House I'm not sure if I said the title already it's Rushdie's 13th novel and it follows a young American filmmaker whose involvement with a secretive tragedy haunted family teaches him how to become a man it starts with the inauguration of Barack Obama in 2008 it will include current and recent political and social events including the rise of the Tea Party, the Gamergate scandal, wow, uh, uh, online harassment, debate over identity politics, and urgently, most urgently, the insurgence of a ruthlessly ambitious, narcissistic, media-savvy media villain sporting makeup and colored oh, hair. Oh, boy. I am here for Salman Rushdie's take on this. I, I didn't realize that we wanted this. I mean, I, if, you would, if I would have – I haven't really <laughs> thought about this. Like, if you would have given me, like, a draft of what authors I'd like to write, right. sort of an American political book right now. I'm not sure that Rushdie would have came to my head immediately, but once you said it, I would be like, yeah, yeah that's I, like, what we're looking for right here. It did not occur to me either, uh, but now that I know that this is a thing I can have, I can't wait to have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be, and you know, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be very interesting. Like I, you know, somewhere the president is already preparing to craft an angry tweet about this book. <laughs> sure, right. I, I mean, I guess this will be the first that I'm aware of novel from a moderate to high profile figure that will explicitly address Trump. Right. I mean, from, we've, we've, we've had the usual spate of like rush job, nonfiction stuff. Right. Um, but that's not what this is. And from is. someone who is, you know, so respected mm-hmm. um, among, you know, the literary establishment, like this is not a, a portrayal of Trump showing up like in a mid-list novel. No, that, no, no, no. Like this thing is going to sit on the bestseller list from the week yep. it comes out probably. It's Salman Rushdie. That's what happens to his books. Um, and it's a it's an interesting and gutsy and I think smart choice to mm-hmm. make. Yeah, um, he's um trans cosmopolitan figure you know he's a citizen mm-hmm. of the world as much as anything right now um, he's not unused to large-scale high stakes literary political discourse um you know he's he's got the scars to and know he's what he's doing here relatively impervious to the kinds of expected insults that we can look for like you know overrated and unsuccessful yes, and right yeah. uh, has been <laughs> yeah he won the booker of bookers Mm-hmm. For Midnight's Children, which is probably the coolest literary prize there is, right? Like, I like the idea that, like, I guess it was a few years ago because of the 25th anniversary of the Booker or 50th mm-hmm. or something. It was like, let's look at all the ones that have won the Booker and then we'll go back and pick one of them to be King of Kings. And that was Midnight's Children. So um, I don't know what's, you know, the name, this name doesn't come up as much for the Nobel Prize as you would think for reasons I do not understand. Um, but anyway, the, there's, it's very difficult to have a higher pedigree th- than Rushdie. Yeah, and when and it comes to transoceanic political strife, uh, no one does it like him. Yeah, and there's a note here at the end of the piece that we'll link to in the show notes that this is going to – perhaps the president in this book is going to be a bit of a, a companion to the portrayal of a different president in 2015's novel um, called Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. Oh, which I didn't read, um, I have to say. Yeah. I have not read that one either, but the book – that book apparently also stars a certain U.S. president who is, quote, an unusually intelligent man, eloquent, thoughtful, subtle, measured in mm. word and deed, a good dancer, though not as good as his wife, handsome <laughs> – <laughs> if a little jug-eared. Uh, so Rushdie, is, like, he's doing this thing. Um, mm-hmm. And he, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's 
that's a big piece of news. I'm sure it'll make a big splash. It's going to get the front cover of the New York Times. Blah, blah, oh, blah. yeah. All if, I guess that go into that. now I'm thinking about who else there is in American fiction that I want to read about these last, mm. you know, eight years or the coming four years. Um, like Toni Morrison doesn't write about contemporary. No, it's not really um, her ballywick. It wouldn't seem to me. Marilyn Robinson, forty years from now, could no, write. No, yeah, it doesn't. It's all. Period. You know, it's it, again. It's if you think. I mean, there's a lot of writers I'd like to see their take on it. But if we're using sort of the milieu as part of the qualification, like hey, you've right. written about politics before, yeah. you've written about large. Like, there's not one that we haven't had to my mind recently. You know, a big political novel that was a big. Deal yeah, I, I guess in the like last several decades, Philip Roth would be an interesting choice, especially yeah, for what, he's, especially for like the plot against America and how that might mm-hmm. align. Now, I'd love to read a Colson Whitehead political novel. Um, yeah, I guess he, his his spin out would be so. De- I mean, the thing about Rushdie is you're going to get realism, right? Right. Like, well, it, it, when it comes to this sort of book, like he's he's not limited to himself to realism, but it, it feels like this is a is you know. There's not going to be uh, unicorns with uh, machine guns or anything mm-hmm. like that. Like it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be pretty straightforward. I would think. I would think. You know, I don't care about France. I'm not. I don't care about France. No. On this. No. Donald Tar. I mean, like, who are the big, you know, bankable literary fiction names? Hard to know. Hard to know. You know, Zadie Smith oh, would be interesting. That would be interesting. Um, you know, there's people that could do it for sure, for sure, mm-hmm. but uh, that have written big political novels and been involved in political. Fracai? What's the plural of fracas? Fracases? Fracases. Fracases. Um, Rushdie is, you know, he's, he's got his championship belt. There's no doubt about that. Um, I guess it's pour one out time. Uh, Shelfie, which was bit lit before, um, has shuttered. It was, we talked about it on the show, from time to time, they'd roll out a new feature. The central idea was if you had a physical copy of a book, that you could get either a free or greatly reduced ebook version of that through some mechanism. And they tried a bunch of different things. I think their launch product was, you, you took a picture of the title page of the book with your signature? Like yes. It, now that I say that out loud, it seems absurd in, in its own kind of way, but that's what they did. Um, and then they tried a bunch of other things. And, and largely there, I, they were trying to figure out some way to bundle ebook and print mm-hmm. books. That was their whole reason for being. Um, they had a thousand publishers on board. Um, and they had some authors who were particular advocates, like Joe Hill really liked them, and he would mm-hmm. do what he could with more Harper Collins, I think, for Nosferatu. They made a big push to make that available for a few bucks if you had a print uh, a print copy. But that's it. Um, the CEO said, in the end, the unit economics of ebook sales just don't make much sense if you don't own the platform like Apple, Google, or Amazon. So Which, there you go. Yeah, we talked about it. I think when they launched, they launched pretty close to the time that we were launching this podcast. So we've been talking about 2013. Yeah. We've been talking about variations of BitLit Shelfie for almost as long as we've been doing this show. And from the get go, it was like clear that the mechanism was kind of clunky, but that it had to be kind of clunky because the main publishers weren't on board with a smooth, easy way to do bundling. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they were trying also to prevent like someone just, you know, multiple people getting their free or discounted eBooks from the same print copy. And that was the thought behind signing the title page. It's interesting to me, like, I think they gave it lots of tries. They did a lot of um, creative innovation and tried a bunch of different things. But there's a note here in this piece from 
um, good e-reader that like they had, you know, a bunch of engineers, they had a PR person, but there was nobody in charge of user acquisition or marketing. Yeah. Um, which, uh, is going to make your experience trying to get adoption for a new piece of technology, a struggle. Um, but there's a, connected- there was nobody in charge of user acquisitions nope, or at a cohesive right. market. Mm-hmm. Like I don't look, <laughs> I'm an, I'm a, I'm a Neo business person, but I don't understand that one. It's, I think if anything, you should have a consumer acquisition person and nobody else. Right. I mean, like if your A number one job is to get people to use your yeah. thing, then acquiring people who use your thing should be your A number I, one I hire. don't understand that. I will never understand that. We see that with some of companies you know, in our space that don't have a marketing budget. They don't want to spend money to try. And again, we're biased because we that's our product is selling advertising space to people and we talked to Shelfie a couple times or a bit lit and like, yeah, sometime that might make sense, you know, when it comes to time. And I'm like, I, I don't get, I, I never understood it. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to go with us necessarily, but you should be trying something. Well, and yeah. If you're trying to build a viable user base for an app like this, mm-hmm. if you're not marketing it, you're really just hoping to win the lottery, like becoming a successful app for anything in any space without a plan and a marketing budget, like really just does require like either you just hit the jackpot of Mm -hmm. right timing. The product is exactly what people want. You get the kind of word of mouth that snowballs into a building user base. But if all those, like if all those things don't tumble into place at the right times for you, you're just hoping that your mm-hmm. thing is going to take off, which we do know from lots of and, experience. And I guess you're hoping, I mean, it's also not something like Snapchat, like a lot of the Silicon Valley Web 2.0 plays, and I guess we're past 2.0 into 2.1 or 3.0, however you want to think about it now, relied, they didn't have marketing budgets, but they relied on like network effect, right? That it was so good that you would talk about it or you would post your thing to the other thing that you already yeah, use. Like which, the classic example is that Instagram really built itself on the back of Twitter and Facebook. Like it had that network effect, but no one's going to post to Facebook that I just picked up, you know, a back, I just picked up uh, Nosferatu for two ninety nine because I had, the, that's just not a story that people want to share with each other. And they didn't give themselves enough time or even enough money to get a critical mass of users among early adopters who would talk about it enough to even get that community involved. Well, Did you Because like, did we ever use this? I didn't. Did I think you? I tried it once when they yeah. first, you know, when they first rolled out the original bitlet. And then I tried it again once when they had converted to Shelfie and you could take the picture of your bookshelf and it would analyze the spines right. and tell you of all the books on your shelf currently, here are the ones that we have ebooks for. But mm. the kicker there was that they didn't have any of them. Like, because I took a picture of my bookshelf, which is largely books from big five publishers and the big five publishers weren't playing. They were involved. Yeah. So it like they, you know, the the idea was right, but this is another thing. Like uh, I think we were talking about Scribd recently. This is another piece of technology, another attempted innovation that can't succeed unless or until the publishers buy into the experiment. So Mm. they were really hampered from the get go. Um, But what you're talking about, like, you know, Snapchat launches, they don't have a marketing budget, but they're hoping everybody who launches an app, it seems like believes so strongly in the yes. things that they have built that it's like, people are going to love this. They're going to talk about it. It's going to be successful, but that's just not the way it, it worked for every Snapchat. There's like a million Snapchat oh wannabes yeah. that launched and failed because no one talked about them. And 
to just make a thing and not have a plan for what you're going to do if you don't win the lottery of word of mouth um, seems like you seems also like you've you know really hindered your chances of success from the get go. Well, it's one thing, you know, the first year you're building out the product and you're trying to figure out what your offering is and what the story is with the value propositions of your users. But this is four years. This is 20. This is 2017. They launched it in 2013. Somewhere along the way, you would have think, okay, now we're going to try to get people to actually use this thing in an organized and responsible way. And they, the company I'm reading from the press or not the the, the post um, on Good E-Reader, the company enjoyed a bunch of engineers, a PR person, and that was it. Uh huh. And Nobody in charge of user acquisition or had, and a, or then they didn't have a community. Yeah, <sighs> it's striking. And really it, striking. you know, I think at some point they did take on investor money, which I oh, just, I'm sure. I don't. I'm, I, well, I think we like reported sure. on that, and yes. I, now I can't fathom how you get to take on investor money and not have to report to someone how you're attempting to grow the user base using their money of this thing mm. they've invested in. Um, so that's. I mean, often that's a later round thing, like a series. A seed, a, uh, seed series or series A is to build the thing and try to find some, you know, basically delta for your growth, yeah. like see what it looks like. And Cross then your the fingers, series hope B's, it works. Yeah. And you don't put too much money, you know, again, too much money in Silicon Valley or investment terms is, you know, eye-poppingly <laughs> large now. But you, a company dumps a million dollars to build a product and they see how it goes. And if there's any interest in the users, then the next series might be you build out, you know, your sales, your marketing, so on and so forth. The, the example, I mean, who better than our listeners, for example, to to try mm-hmm. to acquire, right? You're listening to a podcast about books and nerdy news stuff. Our listeners and people like us, who, uh, people like you guys who are listening to this, should have been using this, have tried to use this. I'd like to, if you can, shoot us an email at podcast at bookwrite.com if you ever tried Shelfie or Bitlet. Just as a, just a survey. Did any of you try this? Um, because the, the, the real sadness to me is I like experiments. I thought this one was not a bad idea. It, you know, the idea of taking a picture and setting it so clunky that I just they didn't feel like there was anything out there, but they could have been, a, uh, basically a clearinghouse for some kind of ebook distribution situation like that. I think that space is still out there. I don't know what it looks like, but I feel like they didn't even get a chance. Like we don't even know if it was a good or bad idea. We didn't right. even know if there was something there cause we just didn't have any, there weren't any bodies trying it. Yeah, that, there's that, and then the piece about not having major publisher buy-in, right. which yep. um, really hinders it. There's kind of a companion piece that we'll link to in the show notes as well. That's from CopyrightAndTechnology.com. That one of our listeners, thank you. Uh, let me find your name, Heather Simmons, uh, sent my way on Twitter that breaks down uh, an analysis of you know sort of the factors in Shelfie not succeeding. And one of them is that uh, the technology is clever and slick, but the thing you have to do as the user is clunky, this, you know, signing the thing on the book. And also that if you like to resell your books or Mm. donate them to a library, it changes the value and the appeal um, of a used book. If it has that signature or any, like any other personalized writing um, on a title page, Uh, it lacked titles from major publishers. It, a note here that I hadn't really considered, but that I think is correct also is that Shelfie's model did didn't encourage repeat traffic that you would take your mm. shelfie like I did. Like you would take it, you'd find that they only had a couple of deals on a small percentage of your books. You might take advantage of that and move on. They would email you sometimes to say that they've added some things, but like, are you really going to go take another picture of your same bookshelf and try it again? DRM protected eBooks um, were a problem. 
And they just, you know, ran into it. This piece also goes on to compare Shelfie to Amazon's Kindle Matchbook program, mm-hmm. which which we talked about in 2013 as well, yep. but like not really since then, which was the same idea that if you bought a print book, you would get the, um, for some titles, you would have the option to buy it on Amazon for $2.99 or less to have the ebook bundle as well. And they had the same problem there that the catalog um, started at 74,000 titles at the launch and it had hasn't grown since then. That's so crazy. three or four years. Um, so that's less than 2% of the print books that Amazon sells are mm. available as ebooks. And HarperCollins was the only major publisher. There's a shock. Uh-huh. Good old HC trying to, I know. I know. <laughs> um, to sign on to the Kindle Matchbook program uh, tour over at Macmillan. Uh, not one of the big five, but a major publisher nonetheless um, also participated, but nobody else was in there. And so, like, these, like, Kindle, if anybody could make print book ebook bundling work in a seamless way it would be amazon um currently because of the technology that they have and the user base Mm -hmm. that they have and the access to all these things but like amazon can't even make this work because the publishers won't let the experiment be conducted and that's just to me the most disappointing thing like it's disappointing to see a cool idea like shelfie or a team that's smart and is doing is trying to find an innovative solution to a problem that mm-hmm. exists not really be able to get an answer to is this a thing people want because the will they do they want this will they use it is so connected to what the books are and if the yeah. vast majority of like popular titles that most people are seeking out to read aren't available then it's it's a non-starter yeah non-starter a couple other things that come up here one is a lot of people's critique of ebooks, and and frankly, increase. This is something I didn't used to worry about, but I'm I'm thinking about it more and more now. Is that you really don't own the ebook; you're leasing it based on DRM, essentially. Mm-hmm. And what happened here is that you the the ebooks you got through Shelfie were DRM'd, and you're they're gone. You, you spent money on them; you don't get them now. Right? Like you can't export them. There's no way to back them up. Everything will be lost. Some of the titles didn't have DRM, but like. They gave 24-hour notice, and you're not going to get the email. Like, the 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 grace of sunsetting this year was also not great. Like, the, mm-hmm. you know, there's the, when the when what's the what's the line when the fall is all that's left. It matters a great deal. Like, who can, yes. who, who cares how a man falls? Uh, like, the end here really matters, and not a good look on Shelfie to again. It's DRM. There's nothing you're going to do, but give the people who could maybe get something out a few weeks notice, a, a month notice, something else like that. But also. I've seen this pop up more and more. I've I've been buying some you know discounted ebooks or whatever in the daily deals. They Audible, Amazon, whatever you know. I don't know how those lines work necessarily, but there's been a lot of times where I've been prompted after buying the ebook to get the audiobook at a deeply discounted rate right mm, there. Interesting. Like for three ninety nine, four ninety nine, something like that. Um, I can't remember what I just. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I just bought something. It's like, would you like the audiobook as well for three nine? I was like, ooh, that's interesting. Um, which suggests to me that Amazon may not have pricing power in the ebook space, but the publisher deals they might have around audiobooks might allow them more flexibility there. That they might have more ability to discount, make one-off authors offers something else like that um, on that. So, and it, the time is going to come where I'm going to buy something as a, a cheap ebook and like get the audiobook for four bucks. I'm like, oh, actually, you know what? I'm buying that. Like mm-hmm. the couple things I did weren't necessarily great for audiobook for what I like, but one of them is going to be, and I'm going to try it. That's, I don't know. So if, if you've seen that too, I'd like to know, is that, is that something you've tried? You're interested in as well. All right. We got, there was a lot there. 
there was there. a lot there. Well, we it is feelings kind of a nexus of our interests, right? Like the right. bundling, it's you know technology. publicity and marketing, technology, you know, people trying stuff out. But it does seem like maybe Shelfie's better move, if they could have had a different move, was not to be an independent company that's consumer-facing, but provide technology to publishers to make their own e-books available in well, a discounted way. To, yeah, to I would say, buyers. or like a smart and interesting thing would have been for a major publisher to acquire Shelfie's technology and use that to make their bundling. Um, mm-hmm. Like if like if in our dream of Penguin Random House giving Amazon the middle finger <laughs> to, get, like, right. to just do their own book sales, then when Penguin Random House launches, like screw you amazon.com and you can buy your print books yeah, your, yeah. all your prh which is like 50 percent of the books published in a year is penguin mm-hmm. random house like if you could buy your print copy through that website instead of some other retailer and they had amazing technology to deliver you a free mm-hmm. or discounted ebook version at the same time this would have been a good place to get it like google acquired our our buddies over at oyster who were doing um ebook subscription stuff because they liked the technology mm-hmm. um, a publisher could have acquired this for the technology and then figured out how to make that work in their own framework um, if they want to do it we still don't know if they want to do yeah, it though yeah. that's the thing though we they're still all know. just afraid of it i don't think they even really like i don't think that I, i'm deep into thinking fast and slow now and mm. i'm just skeptical about everyone's decision making processes <laughs> <laughs> but i don't think that they're really analyzing it it's like that seems dangerous and scary what right. would it do to print books let's just not like mm-hmm. there's we haven't seen a robust experiment in bundling for anyone to have data on which to base an actual decision yeah we've seen I, the, the barest of toes dipping in the shallowest of waters you know remember mm-hmm. our did that thing if you it was like a book at Barnes and Noble, and you got the receipt. You got and it was code like twenty or titles, and yeah, yeah, it was like seven titles. Like that's that's not. Anything. Oh, and it was a proprietary app. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there is a. I don't know if it's hypocrisy on our part, but it certainly is a high standard of we want some sort of platform, but we don't want a dedicated app, right? Right. We don't want. We want to be able to get. Um, you know, my four ninety nine copy of the Underground Railroad after I just plugged, you know, twenty seven bucks for it at Powell's or whatever I might have done. But I don't then want to have to go get the what is that? Uh, that was double day, so a random house. Mm-hmm. I don't have to read it directly in a random house app. I'd like or if it is a dedicated app, it's a dedicated app for ebook bundling that's cross publisher. Right. If it has to be um uh, lockdown.org, at least it's lockdown.org that, you know, twelve or fifteen of the bigger publishers use. So I you know that's my that then that becomes you know maybe I keep my Kindle app but I also have this other one too for these other purchases I'm not sure about that okay where are okay. we should we do our sponsor Let's, probably yeah we should do tell a sponsor. us about our next sponsor then I have happier app news yeah okay <laughs> so uh, our next sponsor is it's a novel a YA novel called A Tragic Kind of Wonderful by Eric Lindstrom let me let me tell you what's about uh, for Mel Hannigan bipolar disorder makes life unpredictable. Her latest struggle is balancing her growing feelings in a new relationship with her instinct to conceal her diagnosis by keeping everyone at arm's length. But when a former friend confronts Mel with the truth about the way their relationship ended, deeply buried secrets threaten to upend her shaky equilibrium. As the walls of Mel's compartmentalized worlds crumble, she fears that no one will accept her if they discover what she's been hiding. Would her friends really abandon her if they learn the truth, though? Um, More importantly, can Mel risk everything? to find out. It's available now. It's called A Tragic Kind of Wonderful by Eric Lindstrom. A very nice, like, water blurred title. It's like if someone took the cover of um, The Sun is Also a Star by mm. Nicola Yoon and then, like, kind of blurred the right-hand side of it. Really beautiful cover. Um, that's A Tragic Kind of Wonderful. Go check it out. 
All right. So in cool app news where you actually can read bestsellers mm-hmm. and award winners, hey, there is an app called Epic with an exclamation point at the end that gives kids access to 20,000 eBooks, um, kids 12 and under. It does include like, once again, they're using Netflix of books, Mm -hmm. which people, you need a new pitch. Uh, there's no ads. There are no in-app purchases. Um, and once you sign up for the subscription, kids can read any book in Epic's library at any time, as many times as they want, which is especially great for those, you know, as you well know, Jeff, those yep. bedtime story books that you're going to read the same one for like a, a year and a half in a row. Um, and different kids can use the same app to access all their favorite books. So you can have as many as four separate profiles on the accounts. If you've got several kids in the same household, or maybe you want to share an account with some friends the service cost $4.99 a month. So that seems pretty great. You can get access to bestsellers like the Goosebumps series, Corduroy, Nancy Clancy, the Warriors series, a whole bunch of other ones. I see some mm. Charlie Brown books. I see some of those rainbow princess fairy Very titles. reasonably priced too. I don't know if you said the title, $4.99 yeah, a 4.99. month. Yeah, hmm. $4.99. Um, Giraffes Can Dance, the Big Nate books, the Tales of Emily Wind song. A uh, lot of variety here. Yeah. And uh, you have know, a span, they have a, they have a sub section dedicated to Spanish language books, which is interesting. Oh, that's great. To see. Yeah. yeah I, and there's some uh, books that are familiar to me that are on our shelves mm-hmm. or have been from the library a couple of times here. I guess that's what I was trying to think. Like, it's, you know, it's hard to know if there's more or less publisher buy-in around children's books than there would be for adult books. But it does seem to me here what this is competing with, at least in my household and some other households with younger kids that I know is this is competing against the library mm. is what this is. Cause mm-hmm. you know, we go once a week and we get eight, 10 kids books and go through them and then take them back. Um, whereas this, the publishers, especially on back title, mid, you know, whatever the mid list of children's would be, you know, does everyone need a copy of drafts? Can't dance. It's, right. it's a nice little book, but it's probably, you know, you read through it once or twice. The thing that strikes me, and I've heard other parents say this, and again, this is anecdata and confirmation bias to the highest order, but it certainly seems to be true in my particular house is that my kids like books. They don't love books on a digital device. Mm. They don't particularly care for it. They like some of the games and stuff like interactive, but when it comes to, you know, which is essentially static images in a sequence, which is what books are, um, (laughs) they, 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 if you need something to change the color of your hair. Yes. If you need something to change, they just like to flip the pages. They like the book. They like to be able to take it by themselves. They like that it doesn't write out of juice. You know, they don't have to share it or wait their turn. I mean, it's, it's difficult to beat. So I don't know if that's a, a meta trend among kids, but in my household, I don't think we would get this necessarily because it doesn't do a job better than what we currently have, which is the library, our own books, and then iPad games, essentially. Yeah, this seems like it would be especially useful if you're traveling with kids. Yeah, that's true. They um, don't have to haul them all around. Yeah. Or if you're commuting, if you're in a city and you're commuting with your kids, you know, in the mornings or after school. Um, don't having... have a local library? I mean, maybe it's yeah. hard to get to the library. Five and, bucks you know, a month to trade for going to the library for an hour or having to drive 20 minutes each way? Like, the, the value replacement of money for your time mm-hmm. there is pretty good. I wonder if – now I'm just going to speculate for a second. Mm, yeah, but well, I wonder... I, no, I haven't speculated at all. <laughs> 
Um, I wonder if one of the reasons that publishers are more open to this is that fact that like when a kid like that, that kids are so prone to going back to mm. revisit the well of these books over and over and over. Like if you are a publisher who was do who's had their books in Oyster or Scribd and you got your little licensing fee um, every time someone read a certain percentage mm. of that book, most adult readers are reading most books once. Right. Um, but like if, you know, if one of your kiddos got addicted to click clack moo. Right. And wanted to read it every day for a month, mm. presumably in, in the like business model of this, or it's a reasonable guess that in the business model sure. of this, the publisher would get paid that fee 30 times. Yeah. Um, and so perhaps that makes it more economically feasible to try it. Um, right. Well, like Kindle Unlimited, I think authors get paid on pages read. Mm. So it doesn't matter necessarily yeah, which and, book it is just how many pages get read. So if it's the right. same one 50 times or 50 single ones, it doesn't matter. We're here, depending how it's licensed, it really could matter. Really, mm -hmm. Well, and I think deal. with Oyster, it was like if you read at least – 10% wasn't 10 that 10% of the book the publisher oh, got Oh, no, the it was full... graduated because like if you got – if they read 10%, you got like 60% oh, right. of it. And if they read 70%, you got – Yeah, whatever. okay. It was tiered somehow is mm -hmm. all I'm trying to say. Right. Um, and just saying but you can numbers. see how the business model might work better for kids' books where kids are going to go back over and over. Um, you, ha you, can, you stand you know, the chance of – like I wonder what the average – rate like per user per title is where I would guess, you know, for Oyster and Scribd and those adult focused services, it would be like at the average user is reading each title once. Um, but what that yeah. rate is for, for kids who, you know, get into a thing and then just want to read that thing over and over might be different. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to know. I don't, the relative size of the catalog compared to the wider range of all available kids books for 12 mm -hmm. and under. Like is 20,000 a pretty good selection is pretty limited. You know, I, I'm not sure why. And would publish, are publishers, do they feel differently about kids' books on subscription than they would as adult books for subscription? Because if they don't, I don't know why this would have any better chance of succeeding than anything else. Um, the other thing that's interesting about kids' books, even more so than adult books, is the persistence of, of bestsellers over time. Mm. Um, I think I've mentioned this mm -hmm. on the show before, like, in by I'm sure it'll be this year by by until through June 30th the best selling book of the year will be Oh, the places you'll go by uh, Dr Seuss yep and uh, the hundred words book and um, the Berenstein Bears and I'm just a little blue truck which has been out for a bunch of years now you look at the kids bestseller list and there there are books that are five ten fifteen twenty fifty years old that are in the top 25, like not even mm -hmm. a, um, a, a To Kill a Mockingbird situation which sells well over the course of a year but never really cracks the top fifty it's always it's, it's always selling pretty well, but it never really spikes or reaches the highest heights. But in kids' books, you do see, you know, The Hungry Caterpillar will be number 17 in the kids' bestseller list. Yeah. So I do wonder if one thing they're fighting or it, that makes the topography of sale uh, retail there a little bit different is you get these iconic books and they camp out. You know, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, example, that's – that's, you know, sells a million copies and there's 11 of them. Like it's hard to compete with that. So if you have a back catalog of titles that aren't in that pantheon – then this might be a good way to monetize them. So you don't care so much about competing with front list because that front list is already there. So you're looking for other ways 
um, to get these books in front of people. That's just one one thing that occurs to me, how the, the topography yeah. might be a little bit different. Okay, what else All we got? Right. Are let's we done? See, I don't know. About... Do we have anything else? I got one more. We had to yeah, talk one about more. Yeah. book fairies, basically. Yes. Uh, talking about getting books in front of people. Some San Francisco book fairy purchased uh, 50 copies of 1984 from Booksmith, which we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier. That's the same publisher that's donating the profits of Simon & Schuster titles in protest of the title that shall not be named. Um, And they left them out in Haight-Ashbury with a sign that read, read up, fight back. A mystery benefactor has bought these copies of 1984 for you if you need one. And they were snapped up very quickly. Um, uh, Kristen Evans, who's the proprietor of Booksmith, said that as soon as the copies were gone, the anonymous donor who lives locally repeated the act Mm. with copies of The Handmaid's Tale. And this is interesting. Eric Larson's In the Garden of Beasts. Hmm. Um, It's about the rise of Nazi Germany, right? Yes. It's an interesting choice and less obvious than The Handmaid's Tale Mm. in 1984, but very interesting nonetheless. Um, So they're... uh, Also, Booksmith is following the success of this by ordering another 100 copies of 1984, and it's going to continue to help people sponsor copies to pass on to others. Um, So we've talked about, especially these two books, 1984 Mm -hmm. and The Handmaid's Tale, have revisited their places on the bestseller lists. uh, I think Amanda and I talked about last week, uh, 84 was sold out at Amazon for a little while. I think you can get it back in stock now, which is an amazing feat. Yeah. Um, And this is very fortuitous timing for Margaret Atwood since The Handmaid's Tale is coming to Hulu in a couple of months. Super Bowl ad. (laughs) Yeah. You see that? Did you see that trailer? I did. I did. We had a, Amanda and several other friends were over for that. And we were like, people were talking. We were like, shh. <laughs> we will be yeah. watching The Handmaid's Tale now. Mm. <laughs> um, that's it a, looks a, terrifying. Like, I, I mean, appropriately terrifying. It really does. There was a woman I was at, in the locker room of my gym had it sitting out on the bench as she was changing clothes and like repacking her bag. And I couldn't help myself but be like is this your first time reading that book Mm. (laughs) she was like oh my god it's so scary um it is so you know this is i think really cool like grassroots literary activism um and we're kicking around some similar notions for how readers Mm -hmm. might resist um so if you have an idea or if we were to if book riot were to make available uh you know like bookmarks or something um for people who wanted to buy copies in their communities of of important books to them to leave out um if you would take advantage of that let us know if you have an Mm. idea let us know podcast at bookriot.com but we're we're certainly kicking around our own variety of literary activism too i think that's our show for the week um as as always you can like uh, rebecca said email us at podcast at bookriot.com you can find i've started including the complete show notes in the episode description that you can see in your podcatcher um, I hope that's been working out every for you okay. If it hasn't been or you'd like to see something different there, um, that's an idea we got from a listener. So um, we, we do listen and make changes from time to time. So let us know if there's any ideas about that. Thanks to our sponsors, A Tragic Kind of Wonderful and Third Love. Um, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, have a good one. Mm-hmm.